Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday! It is Food Junkies podcast time. I am Clarissa Kennedy, and today we have a very special sugar-free treat for you. We have Erica Schulte on the podcast today. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and is an assistant research professor in the Drexel University Center for Weight, Eating, and Lifestyle Science. This is an interdisciplinary clinical research center that aims to develop, test, and create new behavioral and technological solutions to the problems of obesity and disordered eating. Erica's program of research specifically applies a cutting-edge perspective to understanding overeating and obesity by examining one which foods or food attributes, i.e. sugar, may be reinforcing in a manner that drives overeating, two, whether core mechanisms of addictive disorders, i.e. withdrawal, may contribute to eating-related problems for vulnerable individuals, and three, how food addiction may be a useful construct for individualized interventions. Erica has investigated these empirical questions using a multi-method approach, including neuroimaging, scale development, food consumption paradigms, and self-report. Her research interest is the clinical utility of food addiction as a unique phenotype of disordered eating, the addictive potentials of ultra-processed foods, overlapping mechanisms implicated in substance use disorders and eating and weight disorders, assessment of addictive-like eating behaviors, and treatment development for eating and weight disorders. So that sounds like a lot. What is her truth is she is passionate about finding solutions and validating ultra Processed food addiction. She has been inspired throughout her career and has been listening to individuals express significant shame about their eating behavior and body weight because they attribute this to personal weakness or lack of willpower. Her mission is to help reduce and remove this self blame by highlighting the direct roles that ultra processed foods play in motivating eating behavior. These foods have been created by a multi billion dollar industry to be highly rewarding in a way that disrupts natural hunger signals and promotes cravings. She is looking forward to developing her research program to inform new clinical interventions and public policies that address the influences of the food environment. Erica has been helping us and giving us her professional research experience and opinion on our next ICD submission. There are so many takeaways from this interview that we know will help validate your personal experience with food addiction. She's worked directly with Ashley Gearhart, who developed the Yale Food Addiction Scale, and she's been working on developing a new tool that us clinicians can use to help with the assessment and treatment of food addiction. And so we couldn't be more excited to have her on the show today. Welcome, Erica. All right. We are so excited to have Erica here today. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Can you share your personal story of what got you interested in getting involved in the food addiction realm? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to have the opportunity to talk more about my research. So my personal story, uh, I know a lot of individuals who have this expertise in like eating and weight disorders have personal history with having one of those conditions or some shared personal experience. Mine really stems from a, a little bit of a by chance opportunity of getting involved in a lab um, who was looking at a paradigm of impulsivity. So like quick decision-making kind of at the expense of long long-term goal-setting kinds of, of behaviors. And so they were looking at the same paradigm for individuals who had binge eating disorder and for people who were smokers. And so that was just an interesting coincidence of two research teams who were kind of coming together on one project. And it got my mind thinking about there must be something similar going on here for these two research teams to be looking at the same task. So I was looking at the measure of the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which happened to also be in this kind of study uh, questionnaire battery. Um, and that is what really piqued my interest in this overlap between substance use disorders and um, overeating. And then my graduate school training um, led me to Ashley Gerhardt at the University of Michigan, who is, is just so foundational in this food addiction research. Um, but that was my connection into this field. So I'm uh, just very grateful for this opportunity that, that came up and happened to just kind of come across my desk coincidentally. And the opportunity to train with Ashley was phenomenal. So that's how I got into this space. That's amazing. And thank you so much for sharing that kind of like timeline of how that even kind of progresses, because in my experience, unless we have this background or this history, like you were saying, it's really I don't think that many people are super interested in it. Um, but the fact that you kind of, you were interested more in, it sounds like the impulsivity and the behavior and like, Ooh, there's something going on here. So something really got you going. So we, totally. we yeah, absolutely. I'm like, yeah. it, it, curious minds. Right. And I, I think about that, like my brain doesn't really work in that way. So I never know what questions to ask, but it sounds like you showed up and you knew what questions to ask, or you had questions about questions that were being asked. And we recently interviewed Tracy Burroughs and Mark Leary from Australia. And I think you know who those guys are. Um, and I felt the same way about them. They were very curious minds and um, I really liked what they had to say. And they found in their research that the term food addiction was actually the least desirable term to be used for individuals who report some form of eating addiction. And we've also received feedback from uh, the, the WHO based on um, our submission for the ICD that food addiction was not specific enough. And they're looking for, you know, some more specifics as far as like an addictive ingredient, that kind of thing. So what can you tell us about that? Like, can you help us understand what's happening there? Food addiction is not a desirable term. Um, yet many researchers use that in the, the title of their, their work. Um, help us out, you know, what's going on or, and, or what should the term actually be? Yeah, this is such a great question. And Tracy and, and her team have been excellent collaborators. So I'm, I'm very familiar with their perspectives. Um, and I agree with them in, in many ways. I think food addiction came about as this construct was in its like most nascent stages. There's some sort of compulsive eating behavior. And this question about like which foods are implicated in that compulsive eating behavior was a research question at the beginning. And also like the focus of my graduate school work um, in, in part. So I feel like that broader term was to allow for us to not have this like preconceived notion of assuming that any particular group of foods like junk foods, for instance, were only implicated in this phenotype. And so that was something that 
that's been tested. I think now food addiction is about as useful as calling alcohol use disorder, like drinking addiction or beverage addiction, right? There's a lack of specificity there. If you're thinking about it as like beverage addiction, which I know sounds silly, but I think these parallels really help like discern what's going on in the literature and, and the specificity that's really needed for, um, for our area of study. So I think there's ample evidence now to suggest that these ultra-processed foods, which is a, a scientific term um, using the NOVA food classification system of a group four foods, they're basically what you would think of as junk foods, um, but foods that have an added amount of fat or refined carbohydrates, both of those things, um, which notably doesn't exist in any naturally occurring foods. So these foods have been created, whether you're making them at home by combining butter and sugar to make those tasty cookies or whatever you're making, or buying these industry created foods that have been created to be super reinforcing are really palatable and most importantly for the industry profitable. So I think there is a lot of evidence to suggest that those foods now are uniquely implicated in this phenotype. Um, whereas naturally occurring foods that we do need to eat to survive, the food that is you know necessary for survival um, really have very little if no association with these indicators. So I would be advocating for kind of altering this term to be ultra-processed food addiction, to be that you know specific ingredient um, or class of foods uh, that that is uh, implicated in this phenotype. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the consensus that we are now starting to get when we're looking at our next potential ICD submission. But speaking of that, what do you think is missing right now from the research and science field when it comes to ultra-processed? food addiction. Is there something that you are working on right now? And how can this help influence our ICD submission? And like, what impact do you think it would have on clinical significance? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there are there is a lot of uh, amazing, convincing science that's been this groundwork for the basis of why we're still studying food addiction. And I, I use that term moving forward for simplicity. And also, since like you said, it is what is most represented in the field right now. Um, so that's really why I'm using it. But I think one of the the core components um, is the identification of this addictive ingredient within the ultra processed foods, which is something that's been identified across all substance use disorders. So um, with my alcohol analogy, again, you know, it's not beverage addiction, it's alcohol use disorders. So that's kind of where the like ultra processed food parallel is. But then within alcohol, we know ethanol is that addictive agent. So that's what makes alcohol addictive. We don't yet know what the ethanol is in ultra processed foods. That's that analog. And a lot of people are, are really wanting to pin it on one specific thing. I feel like refined carbohydrates is where the, the strongest literature is. So things like white flour or sugar. However, with all addictive substances, there's this multitude of ingredients that enhances the palatability and the reinforcement of the addictive ingredient. So if ethanol is, you know, it, it is the addictive agent in alcohol, but we're not just having straight ethanol, right? It's in combination with notably sugar is something that's in a, a lot of alcoholic beverages. It's watered down. There's, there's all of these processes for this optimal percentage of ethanol 
ethanol in particular alcoholic beverages. And similarly in cigarettes, they have hundreds of ingredients. Again, and one of them being sugar, which is interesting. So I think one of the most important things will be kind of identifying that specific component within ultra processed foods that is that like the ethanol um, is one component. I have some other ideas as well, if you want to hear them, but I'll pause there. No, 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 for sure. I want to hear them. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Sure. The other component I I think that is really important is um, core mechanisms of addiction and understanding how they play out with respect to eating behavior. So a lot of the um, critiques of food addiction are that it's, you know, binge eating disorder repackaged. It's the same thing. And there's many reasons why that's not true, but the the theoretical perspective of addiction has mechanisms that are not accounted for or addressed um, or even acknowledged to be true in eating disorder um, theory. And withdrawal and tolerance are two of those core mechanisms. So eating disorder frameworks have no acknowledgement of withdrawal from certain foods. Um, In many ways, it's the opposite. There's no good foods and there's no bad foods. And the addiction perspective says, no, actually, there's something in ultra processed foods that are directly driving this presentation of problematic eating. So withdrawal is something that if we can demonstrate evidence that Um, when people are cutting down on ultra processed foods, they're having this withdrawal syndrome. And it's not just because they're hungry um, or they're in a calorie deficit. It's truly this absence of the ultra processed foods. That would be very compelling evidence for the utility of this addiction framework and something that, again, is not accounted for by existing eating disorder perspectives. And is this something that you're kind of working on right now, this proof of construct? Yeah, totally. So the the research I've done so far, like on on my way out of grad school, um, I created a questionnaire, a self-report measure that is adapted from the Wisconsin Smoking Withdrawal Scale, which is a well-known questionnaire for assessing um, smoking withdrawal um, or nicotine withdrawal. And so we we were looking at those exact same symptoms. The reason why that was, was the analog that came to mind was that smoking withdrawal is very psychological. So it's something that is more like preoccupation and craving and less these like, you know, life-threatening at times physical symptoms that can surface in alcohol withdrawal or other, um, you know, opiate withdrawal as well. So the the smoking was the parallel there and creating that measure, I did an an online study that was very preliminary, has tons of limitations that I'm the first to acknowledge. Um, But I asked individuals to think about the last time that they tried to cut down on ultra processed foods, defined what that meant for people, which is basically junk food. So in that last time that they tried to cut down, I asked them if they had any of these experiences that again, were the exact symptoms that are assessed for smoking cessation. Um, and withdrawal. And there was a parallel between this constellation of symptoms that seemed to exist, not only the psychological symptoms, but some of the common physical symptoms like having headaches or having some sleep difficulties. Um, There was evidence for those, which is interesting. And so this was very preliminary, totally retrospective. People could have been in a calorie deficit. I don't really know what they were doing, but it's it's just enough evidence that, um, and the correlates of it were fascinating. So one of the, the interesting clinically significant components was that it was a significant predictor of dieting success. So if someone said that they reported these you know, symptoms, this constellation of what we think of as withdrawal-like experiences, they were um, significantly less 
likely to stick to their dietary uh, approach of cutting down on these foods. And also the time course of the symptoms that they reported, again, looking back on it, really like eerily paralleled withdrawal syndromes where it seemed like there was a strong start, a couple of days where things were going well. And then around days three to five, which is very characteristic of substance use withdrawal, um, that's when they were reporting these symptoms. And then they dissipated within about two weeks um, with some of the psychological ones like preoccupation and craving sticking around. So it painted this convincing picture of like, there's something to study here. So one of the research studies that I, I'm developing right now, and I know some of my collaborators like Ashley Gerhardt at Michigan uh, are really interested in this idea um, of looking at withdrawal in real time. And most importantly, looking at it, um, isolating this uh, removal of ultra processed foods. So as another uh, alcohol comparison, that's going to sound odd when I describe it, but I feel like it really embodies the science and explains it is we want to make sure that when people are, you know, removing alcohol, we want to isolate isolate that as the addictive component that's causing withdrawal. So we want to make sure they're not thirsty, right? So they should be able to remove alcohol from their diet, drink as much water as they'd like to, to make sure those like homeostatic needs are met and they should still have withdrawal because the alcohol has gone. So in a very similar way, we're trying to remove the ultra processed foods from their, their eating, um, their meals and snacks, and then replace them with as many whole foods that we believe are not implicated in this presentation of food addiction um, as they want to make sure they're not in a calorie deficit and then see if we're, we're still exhibiting withdrawal. So that's kind of the framework. And, and I know that those parallels with alcohol are, are silly when we say them, but that really is where the state of the science is with this. And I, I hope we'll look back in 20 years and think this also sounds silly. So, I mean, is it too early to talk about any of your findings so far, or is that something that you can share a bit about? So for me personally, this study is very much in progress. Um, so I'm using a ecological momentary assessment or EMA. It's a popular technique where people are getting like pinged on their smartphone to complete these surveys throughout the day. Um, I'm also asking them what they're consuming to make sure that they're actually adhering. We're you know, meticulously logging their calories, comparing it to baseline, tracking their weight, all of these ways of just ensuring they're not in a calorie deficit and that they're you know, appropriately replacing these foods. So because it's in progress, I don't have data um, emerging yet, but anecdotally, I've heard some really interesting things from just speaking with my participants and in this study and actually several others, um, a lot of the clinical work I do, I have the opportunity to work with individuals who are cutting down on these foods, whether it's part of a diet attempt where they're trying to lose weight or just healthy eating changes. And withdrawal is something people talk about, something that keeps me feeling optimistic about this area of science, you know, just it being really controversial at times, is that my patients and the participants I work with have never disagreed. Even people who don't experience it can say like, yeah, I can understand how someone could have that. Or, you know, my cousin had has sugar addiction and goes through these withdrawal periods. So it's a relatable, understandable experience. And so for that reason, I feel more confident and, you know, I feel like it's important to defend in the scientific community and continue to study. So stay tuned for data on that. Um, it will definitely be coming and I'll certainly share it when it does. I'm super excited for that. So Speaking of findings, I was obviously doing some research on your, or research is the wrong word. I was reading your research. 
<laughs> in preparation for today, um, but also because I want to stay up to date on what is out there. And some of what I came across um, was really interesting to me. Um, in some of your findings, you know, it was mentioned that tolerance and craving are the least frequent symptoms among individuals with, you know, food addiction. Can you talk to us about why that might be or what that was, what that finding actually means? Yeah, I think so for craving, that one is the more like surprising one. And that has been more variable across studies. So I think one of the uh, research studies where that was true for mine was a very general population sample where people were, you know, not necessarily um, being, I guess, surveyed for their weight status or particular characteristics that were associated with high risk eating behaviors. Um, so my, my understanding is that, you know, intense cravings where people are like reporting it on a question questionnaire that they're having problematic issues with food cravings is probably less likely in the general population, though we all crave, you know, junk foods in one way or another. You know, most people, when they're filling out a measure, may not say like, yes, it's like to a problematic degree or something that's like taking up my time and headspace, you know, all day, every day. Um, so I think that kind of normative craving is, is something that maybe had people under endorsing that uh, particular in, in like the general population sample. It's actually very endorsed among individuals who have higher weight status or for people who actually have disordered eating. So that there's a little nuance there. I feel like tolerance is just really hard for people to understand. So there's a couple of ways that tolerance can present, which is one, increasing portion sizes over time to get the same effect that you're looking for. So um, an example might be people who are eating to relieve stress. And over time, they feel like they need to eat more in order to get that stress relief that they initially got from you know two cookies. Now they need four. So that kind of increased seeking to get the same effect. Effect. The other way that it can manifest is people who are eating the same amount, so those two cookies, but they're just experiencing less stress relief. And so they're not actually increasing their portion sizes, but they're experiencing less of that kind of reinforcement um, and feeling from it. I think that's really hard to ask people about on a questionnaire and to explain it. So my instinct is that people don't really know why their portion sizes have increased. They don't have that like psychological insight unless they're working with a practitioner about why their portion sizes might have increased or why it's, you know, specific foods and not others. Um, so my kind of read on the, the tolerance is just lack of insight. And rightly so, that's not something people have ever heard about or probably ever answered question about. Yeah, I actually agree with you so much because even when, I mean, I was having this conversation with the client the other day about, you know, a family pack of Oreos in their house only lasting one or two days and like, you know, their daughter saying, oh, that's all how it is in everyone's household. Like it just, that's how much regular people eat. And so therefore, how do we know if this is excessive or if this is normal? So that makes a ton of sense to me. So originally when we went in under the ICD, we went as, you know, food addiction as a specific substance. And this time we were looking at what if we went, so let's just say we went forward with the term ultra processed food addiction. And if we went forward with that term and we put it in an eating disorder subset, where do you think that would fit and why? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, it's something that I've thought a lot about too, is like, where does this fit in the DSM? Um, you know, as we're thinking about our end goal, I know we all agree, and I appreciate the hard work that you both are doing to advance that, that mission. So my uh, personal preference would be to keep it in the substance use disorder realm. I think that is where like the theoretical perspective is informed by. So looking at these mechanisms of withdrawal and tolerance that parallels substance use disorders, the the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which is that self-report measure that is really the most common way of operationalizing food addiction. Um, it is completely based in those 11 DSM indicators um, that are used to diagnose substance use disorders. So theoretically, and in terms of treatment implications, I feel like that addiction home is best for the diagnosis. I think for overlap with eating disorders and just where it would fit generally is, is certainly more in the binge type eating disorders. The overlap between binge eating and food addiction is really um, focused on like overlapping symptoms like loss of control and also their binge consumption is a presentation of addictive like you know uh, intake. So if we're thinking about um, people who are smoking, there's chain smoking, binge drinking, like there are these use patterns that are characterized by binging frequently for people who have addictive uh, responses to the substance. So we would most certainly expect that binge consumption of these ultra-processed foods would be one way that addiction could present for these foods, but it also can look like grazing. So it could be someone who's having these foods throughout the day. I, I work with um, many patients who are um, reporting that they're eating consistently as they're working, as they're watching TV. Like there's always just these foods that are around them. Um, or if they're feeling stressed going into a meeting, they have the foods in their desk or you know, at their home office and we'll have some before the meeting. So that more like compulsive um, momentary consumption is another pattern that isn't categorized um, under that umbrella of binge eating. So I feel like there is an opportunity to diagnose people who are in that kind of the eating disorder, not otherwise specified category, but with food addiction, right? Which is more of this substance use presentation. So I think the clinical implications is to kind of catch some of those um, diagnose people and have a more appropriate diagnosis for their experience. But I personally think that diagnosis is a better fit in the substance use realm. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because we are attempting to pull <laughs> many professionals in this area. And it's, it's really interesting to hear everybody's you know, perspective on why it should be under substance use disorder or potentially under eating disorders, non-specific with this food addiction modifier, whatever it might be. And, um, I think this is where you have talked to us before and said, it might be just way too early yet to push forward with, with another or a resubmission or, or trying again. And this makes sense as to why, because we just don't know yet. And, and maybe, maybe we never will. I don't know, but, but that being said, thinking about binge eating disorder and the crossover, we have many clients where they have, where they think it's binge eating disorder or have been diagnosed with that. And really it's probably more likely food addiction, but then we also have the clients that there is crossover. There's both happening. So can you talk to us a bit about how ultra processed food addiction and binge eating disorder might be different? I mean, you, you just mentioned a bit how they're the same, but you know, how are they different and how prevalent is binge eating disorder in people with food addiction and vice versa? Like what, what should we be looking out for? 
Yeah, I, I think this is such an important question and really it gets to the heart of one of the critiques that's out there um, about food addiction. So the overlap um, prevalence wise between food addiction and binge eating is about 40 to 50% in studies that have, you know, utilized the, the Yale food addiction scale um, and have gone through this, you know, metric of really sussing out the prevalence. I think one of the difficult things in studies that have found much higher rates than that, you know, upwards of like 80 percent really speaks to the subjectivity of people reporting on, you know, certain experiences like loss of control or eating more than they intended to. So for example, a, a person who has a restrictive type eating disorder even, um, or has binges in the context of bulimia might report eating more than they plan to very frequently, um, but they didn't plan to eat that much in the first place. So it's this kind of objective versus subjective experience that I think is so confusing with trying to like, quote unquote, diagnose food addiction with a self-report questionnaire. That is, you know, not the gold standard for any disorders that we're diagnosing, um, particularly eating disorders where insight into behavior can be really limited because food, it's, it's very like egocentric, like it's a part of them or something that they're trying to dispel, but you have to eat multiple times a day. So insight gets very cloudy. So the, my understanding is probably around that 40 to 50% prevalence rate is a reasonable estimate when you're kind of taking out some of those other factors that might lead to higher rates of overlap. So for the kind of theoretical um, similarities and differences, the addiction perspective, like I mentioned earlier, the withdrawal intolerance is completely novel. And even more distinct is this perspective of like the no good foods, no bad foods in eating disorders and treatment being really focused on changing cognitions um, around those foods, uh, importantly, re um, limiting restriction. So making sure that someone is not cutting these foods out of their, um, their meals and snacks under the kind of theoretical pretense that that's actually a risk factor for increasing binging. Um, so kind of dieting leading to binging is that part of the eating disorder theory. And when we're thinking about it from the addiction standpoint, the kind of restriction um, that people are doing, that's this kind of relapsing pattern of persistent, unsuccessful attempts is a personal way of trying to like protect themselves essentially from the reinforcing nature of the substance. So people aren't trying like cutting down on alcohol because they feel like deprived from it. And that's triggering them to have it. It's this kind of like physiological protection from the addictive use that they inevitably engage in when they encounter it. So from the treatment standpoint, addiction treatment does kind of talk about the onus on these ultra processed foods as being problematic, as directly causing this problematic eating behavior, which I think removes some of the stigma for people who are feeling like very upset with themselves and their willpower and their self-control. And when we're actually putting a little more responsibility on the foods and the food industry that's responsible for creating them, um, which actually has like underlying ties to the tobacco industry quite tightly, which is fascinating to me. I think that reduces personal stigma. And I, I do talk to people about that like um, in a more uh, directive way of like, we do know that these foods can change biology and change behavior. And so you're not weak because you experience problems with them. And that treatment approach and limiting those foods and you know some abstinence, mostly like a harm reduction of nuancing you know, specifically which foods 
are problematic and focusing treatment on those as opposed to like get rid of all ultra processed foods in our food environment would be impossible. So this kind of like moderation with low risk foods and then abstinence with high risk ultra processed foods is more of what treatment would look like. And that would be so foreign and like very much against eating disorder perspectives. Um, when I've tried to explain that in audiences of, of uh, expert researchers for eating disorders, they're like, feel like I'm going to cause eating disorders and binging. And it's just different theoretical perspectives and the opportunity to help people also who are not currently responding to existing eating disorder treatments, because this might be a better approach for them. You are 100% speaking our language, Erica. Just everything you said there was exactly, I think, how both Molly and I practice with the individuals that we work with. And I always use the MYFAST 2.0, you know, as kind of a screening before an initial consult. And yeah, there's some missing pieces. And I think last time we were talking, you told us that you were working on creating a clinical interview for diagnosing food addiction. From a clinical point of view, this makes us very excited. So can you tell us more about how you developed it? And then also, how does it separate the eating disorders from food addiction? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to talk about this. I feel like this is one of the most like important gaps in how food addiction is assessed currently. You know, like I just mentioned, there's so much subjectivity and personal interpretation about a person's eating behavior. And so we really need a clinician to kind of suss out, is this objective addictive like eating? Is this someone who actually has more of a restrictive type eating disorder presentation or, you know, subclinical components of that who does not meet this, this presentation for what we would consider ultra processed food addiction. So I think having that opportunity to have conversations, you know, like we diagnose every other psychological condition is really necessary. And importantly, the reason why this is the next step is because of all the incredible literature and evidence that's come from the Yale food addiction scale. So because we have that foundation, it's like, it's time to kind of level up and take it to that next step of a clinical interview. So this is something that I have developed um, in collaboration with several individuals, including Ashley Gearhart at Michigan, who created the YFAST in the first place. Also Kelly Allison at the University of Pennsylvania, um, who developed the interview for night eating syndrome. So another, you know, phasing this into the DSM. So good people on this team. Um, and so what we did was, again, paralleling this analog from the addiction realm um, was to adapt the alcohol use disorder module from the SCID, which is a semi-structured clinical interview for diagnosing, you know, the current DSM diagnoses, all of them. So we utilize the alcohol use disorder module specifically as, as opposed to the more like substance use disorder uh, generally, because the specificity exists around something that is, you know, commonly consumed, it's socially normative. Um, so there are parallels in the symptoms that we would expect to see with alcohol um, and food addiction. So we adapted the questions on the skid, um, you know, as, as closely as we could, and also pulling in examples from the Yale food addiction scale that are specific to addictive like eating behavior. So, you know, use when in, in physically hazardous situations is different from alcohol. So we were pulling those specific examples of like eating while you're driving, feeling distracting, like texting and driving um, from the Yale food addiction scale. So the format is very um, akin to the skid, but we're also staying true to some of those theoretical uh, components that have been so helpful from the questionnaire. 
And so when we're thinking about like separating out eating disorders, this, to me, this um, clinical interview has the potential to uh, eliminate some of the overlap that's, I think, artificially elevated between binge eating disorder, between restrictive type eating disorders, and to also understand like the, you know, developmental time course. So when did this happen? Did people actually diet before they started experiencing these symptoms? Or is this something that they kind of did in that protective way that I was talking about earlier? Like they had this kind of draw and reward towards these foods. They started eating them in a compulsive way. As a result, they, you know, then went on diets afterwards to to try to like, you know, remedy some of that, that presentation. So I think it gives us a chance to just ask questions that I've been dying to ask and also to, I think, reduce some of the, uh, you know, artificially elevated perhaps prevalence rates between eating disorders and food addiction. When do you think that this is going to be ready for clinical use? Because we want it to use it. Same. So I would say like the pace of data collection and analysis, um, I would imagine sometime next year would be feasible. So I'm, you know, certainly chipping away as the top priority, um, but very excited for the potential to, to put this out there. And I'm also actually validating it in a sample of individuals with binge type eating disorders. So either um, binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa. And I think that's also going to be important to differentiate prevalence rates to try to understand, um, you know, just anecdotally from some of the people I've talked to, binge eating tends to be less specific. So people aren't saying it to just ultra processed foods that they're having this experience with. They're, you know, most common, but also they're saying, you know, no matter what's around, I'll eat it just to kind of get that sensation of overfullness. And so I think that's especially important when we're making the distinction between someone who's having, you know, the specific addiction, addiction response to ultra processed foods versus someone who has more like the binge eating experience is reinforcing and the food may be less important in that presentation. Another notable difference that I've um, observed just again anecdotally from conducting these interviews is that people who um, have binge eating disorder only are a lot more likely to have dieted before the onset of these uh, symptoms, which of course is in line with eating disorder theory. There's a reason it's there in the first place. Um, Whereas individuals who have food addiction, um, they just reported this like lifelong draw towards these foods. And so they went on diets because, you know, a lot of these participants are female and the societal standard of beauty being, you know, this thin ideal, they are realizing like my eating behavior doesn't align with that. And it's not that the the thin ideal caused the overeating behavior, but it might've caused them to restrict their, you know, their addictive like consumption or try to to modulate that. So I think there's just kind of like the the cause and effect is, is another way that I'm seeing the difference between, you know, binge eating disorder without food addiction versus both together. Yeah. And so I guess I I have a question uh, that kind of comes from that. And so I don't know if you're really prepared to answer something like this, but, but in, so in the substance use disorder world, because Clarissa and I are both clinicians that originally come from that, that field, right. We would use something like the ADIS, the alcohol drug diagnosis instrument, or um, like I use the SASE, which is like the subtle alcohol or substance abuse subtle screening inventory. And I don't know if you're familiar with those at all, but, but my question, I guess then would be based on what you're developing as far as your clinical interview goes, you know, we have experience with these other interviews, structured interviews 
how appropriate is is it to use something like those pre-existing interviews for other substances with food addiction? So assessing other substance use disorders in the context of food addiction? No, using the same questions, but applying it to food addiction. Is that appropriate? Possibly. I think like all of these potential ideas are excellent research questions. I think the, you know, those specific uh, measures that you're referencing, like they, they aren't necessarily like fully diagnostic. So they're not this like comprehensive diagnostic tool, like the skid is, which is what this food addiction interview will be based on, but they're quick. And so there's a lot of utility around using them as screening measures. I think adapting some of those more like, you know, quick tools, like you said, you're using the MY fast, which is 13 questions versus the why fast being 35. So these brief tools are really helpful. And so I think briefer interview versions, like adapting some of those that you mentioned could be an excellent next step for research. But I think the comprehensive diagnosis is needed first, and then the, the briefer measures can follow that. So, you know, would certainly look forward to exploring that, you know, fingers crossed, depending on what we find here. Yeah, no. And I guess I was just curious about that because it would seem to me that neither of those would actually be able to determine, is this binge eating disorder? Is this right? It wouldn't be able to suss out some of those nuances. And again, we may be over-diagnosing and we may be treating something that doesn't actually exist. So thank you. I just, as you were speaking about your tool, I just, I wanted to know how that would apply. So absolutely. So switching gears just a bit, we have many clients who do refrain from using those refined carbohydrates, like you said, like sugar and flour, but then they turn to that increased volume of food. And we know that stretching in the stomach has the oxytocin serotonin release, and that can kind of be a backdoor to the dopamine. Could this volume eating be an adaptive function for that purpose to increase serotonin and oxytocin? Or is this binge eating disorder now, or based on what you were saying earlier, could this be tolerance? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the, like the stretching of the stomach being something that is associated with like that numbing out feeling almost with also um, kind of replacing uncomfortable emotions with one that is physically familiar and uncomfortable is another component that I hear a lot clinically. So I I certainly think that that could be a component of the reinforcement and reward. I think the differentiator between binge eating is, like I mentioned, there is potentially less specificity around the types of foods that are used to achieve that effect. Um, Whereas for someone with ultra processed food addiction, that stretching of the stomach would probably be a consequence of, you know, over consuming ultra processed foods. If it plays into reinforcement, Enforcement. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but I think the specifically the food itself from the addiction standpoint, overeating that to the point where your stomach is so uncomfortably full that it's really uncomfortable, um, you know, physically and lasts for many hours afterwards. I think that's being driven by this just kind of compulsive motivation and like wanting for a greater effect of these foods. Also, you know, maybe because there is this tolerance effect, they need to eat more, but the, the kind of the, the uncomfortable feeling is something people usually describe being really unpleasant though. I, you know, I, I totally understand the 
the, the neurotransmitters being implicated. And, and to a certain extent, that probably is a component that helps that stress relief or numbing out feeling um, or creating a familiar uncomfortable emotion, like I mentioned. Last time we met, we talked a little bit about how clinically we were having individuals um, show up and saying, you know, that they were finding fruit addictive. And you had said, oh, I think I could poke holes in that. And so we're asking you to be devil's advocate today. And I'm really interested in this because I remember when I first started my journey, I definitely believed that apples were my addictive substance, that I couldn't have them. I didn't know if I specifically a Honeycrisp that was big. And, you know, I definitely had that obsession. And so it seemed in my mind to fit the criteria of an addictive food. And so I'm interested what you would maybe say clinically if I showed up in your office and reported this to you. Yeah, absolutely. I I think one of the most important things is that anyone who is coming in reporting distress around eating behavior or patterns that they want to change is very important to take seriously from a clinical standpoint. So when we're, you know, when I'm talking about next steps and how I think about this with respect to food addiction, you know, I I certainly don't want to undermine any person's experience, your history and and what you've shared with me um, or, you know, anyone that I work with. And I have encountered this situation many times clinically. So to just pull it out a little bit to back to my kind of alcohol analogy, uh, which I think is also very helpful here. If someone came into my office and I'm like an alcohol use disorder researcher and clinician, and they're telling me that they're really having a lot of problems with LaCroix sparkling water. They're feeling like they drink it so much that those bubbles fill up their stomach. They're really, you know, struggling. But as an, you know, an alcohol use disorder specialist, I know that that is not under the realm of alcohol use disorder, right? It's a, a problem with a different beverage. That specificity is necessary if we're applying an addiction perspective to problematic food consumption. So, you know, the current line of research really pointing towards ultra processed foods. If If we are assuming that to be true, which I'm a firm believer in, but I I know it's still a research question. But if we are assuming for a moment that that's true, someone coming in and presenting with, you know, their perceived experience of being addicted to apples does not align with the state of the science about which foods are associated with food addiction. So it would be a different presentation of eating behavior. It's similar as well to someone who's coming in saying like, I I binge, but it's kind of like over the course of like several hours a day. It doesn't fit that definition of like, two hours, um, you know, in that time period, loss of control, like there's something more ambiguous there. And so they don't meet criteria for binge eating disorder. They probably get that endnose diagnosis. So in a very similar way, I think that we really need to hone in on its ultra processed food addiction. If that's true, it's these foods. And if someone's presenting with problematic eating to other foods, it you know, doesn't meet that diagnostic criteria. Um, it really overstating this, the science on that, but just to kind of pull it out for a moment to how we might approach that in the future when this is more definitive. Um, that's my personal perspective on it. Yeah. And obviously in hindsight, you know, at that time I was, you know, eating three apples a day, but I also wasn't eating other foods. And so when I actually started, cause I was restricting. So when I started like nourishing my body, I didn't have that need or desire to overconsume. You know, I wasn't sitting down and eating three apples in a row. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, like you said, specificity is so important because, yeah, you know, we definitely have individuals who can consume fruit in the morning, but maybe it's a little bit more problematic in the evening. But, you know, we wouldn't say to an alcoholic necessarily, oh, just have a little alcohol in the morning and then you won't need it. (laughs) Don't drink it at night because it's more risky. So thank you so much for clarifying that, Erica. That was awesome. Yeah. And you also bring up such a a great point about like the kind of the interplay of like restriction there. Right. So it sounds like the, you were hungry physiologically. And so satisfying that hunger with these foods that, you know, are naturally high in sugar, it is rewarding. Um, it's probably why you reached for them over like grilled chicken. Um, and so I, I completely understand that like the palatability of those foods being more enticing, but the restriction is a component there, right. That we wouldn't expect to be present for some someone who's um, exhibiting this addiction phenotype, it's very independent of homeostatic needs. So, you know, removing thirst from the equation, are people still having trouble? And so I I think in a similar way, uh, we really want to be looking at these questions um, from the research standpoint in the absence of hunger or caloric restriction or restrictive presentations of um, problematic eating. So I think that's also just such an important nuance there that you bring up. Absolutely. So in your research and experience, based on anything you've read, your clinical work, working with patients, working with um, research participants, you know, what are some of the evidence-based strategies to embracing healthier behaviors or, or behavior change could our audience start implementing today? Yeah, I think from the from the food addiction standpoint and just kind of in the spirit of, of people who might be really identifying with this conversation, I think one of the, the components, just to reiterate that I brought up earlier, is that it's not your fault and it is not a lack of willpower. One of the most powerful things I heard in a, a scientific presentation at a conference was with these rising rates of obesity, you know, with these, you know, increased prevalence rates of diet-related diseases, type 2 diabetes, things that are extremely associated with what we're eating. This change over time hasn't been because people are less responsible, right? People haven't gotten worse at modulating their food consumption over time. The food environment has significantly changed. And that seems to be a, you know, a direct parallel of the time course of, you know, the ultra processed foods coming into our food system in the 1980s is really when rates of obesity started to exponentially rise. It's not a coincidence. It's not people becoming worse at, at modulating consumption. So I think knowing that and just dispelling some of the stigma around eating behavior and shaming people into, you know, it's it's up to you to balance what you eat and do, which is the slogan of a very popular um, beverage company. And I think that is just oversimplified is basically telling people, um, you know, in, in the face of all these rewarding food cues, it's up to you to figure it out. It's not on us as an industry who's creating these products and pushing them to you with a little sign that says, balance what you eat or eat and do on the vending machine amidst all of these rewarding, you know, ultra processed beverages. That's just not fair. And I I think that that doesn't set people up for success. So I personally believe that policy change is going to be really important from the, you know, national, international level. 
for the individual, knowing that is, is sometimes helpful from like the truth campaign for, for smoking, for instance, like the industry is making these products to get you kind of hooked to profit from your problematic eating behavior. That's their goal is to keep you coming back no matter what it does to you from a health standpoint, from a psychological standpoint. And so some of that perspective has been helpful for changing behavior around smoking. And so I think that just learning more about the role that the industry plays in making these foods, their goals in doing this, um, and, you know, irrespective of what it does to you as a person can be empowering to potentially stop buying those foods and bringing them into your home, which is a stimulus, a stimulus response uh, strategy that we know is effective for reducing, uh, you know, problematic eating is changing the home food environment. But you have to be willing to like buy less of those foods in the first place. And I really like the angle of just kind of um, thinking through the industry profiting from you and your, your, your problematic, distressing eating behavior as a motivation to make some of those changes. Um, so, of course, like removing access to these foods. I think another component is just nuancing which foods are problematic and which are not. So from the ultra processed food category, there's no way that someone's going to become abstinent from all of those foods, cold turkey, right? There's just too many of them. And the, the categorization is really broad. So if you're someone who doesn't struggle with having a sandwich, for instance, on white bread with mayonnaise, you know, no matter what's in the sandwich, those kinds of like entree types of foods not might not be as problematic as, you know, fast food entrees as, um, you know, white pasta as white bread on it own as candy or cookies in the house. Um, and so I think setting yourself up in the best way you can for your lowering your risk around those particular foods, because um, everyone's different. And that's also not something that's unique to food. Um, you know, people's alcohol preferences vary from preferring this beverage to that beverage. So whether you prefer sweet or salty, um, I get that all the time. It's like, I'm not addicted to sugar beverage, sugary beverages or sweets. It's really like salty chips. I'm like, metabolically, that's very similar. They're all in that class of foods. So I think understanding your personal triggers and reducing access to them is, is a great strategy um, that, you know, it's, it's tough in our society, but there are ways that you can control like home food environment, work environment, those types of things. Yeah, no, that's so true. Even when, you know, I'm speaking to clients, I say, you know, if you grew up in a household and then all of a sudden sudden started consuming alcohol at like the age of two up to the rest of your life, the whole world would have a whole bunch more people with alcohol use disorder because it would just be accessibility, it would be hardwiring the brain, not even if you had a genetic predisposition. And this is exactly what's happening with ultra processed foods. We're born on it. We're raised on it. And, you know, if we have a sensitivity at all, then of course it's going to hijack our whole system and we will become addicted. And so that de-shaming, I think is so important to have that. And most of the time I just say, like, I think a lot of us are are a little bit addicted to most of the foods out there and they were created that way. And so, you know, if people are trying to be a food pusher or something in your life, that's probably because they want to feel better about themselves if you eat it with them, because they might have a problematic relationship with it too. And it's just, yeah, like you said, the society we live in right now. 
All of those points are are amazing. And I, I really appreciate you stating all of that. I, I always think about like this cue reactivity and like how we are hardwired from childhood. It's one way where food addiction might be more severe than any other addiction really that we, um, you know, have been exposed to. Smoking is a close second in terms of like that early exposure where, you know, children were smoking um, before it became addictive, before there were these restrictions around it. But it was it wasn't like a two-year right? So it was just kind of like late childhood, early adolescence, um, but it wasn't uncommon. And as a result, smoking prevalence rates were very high. The ability for people to quit was very challenging because like you said, this d- during that developmental sensitive period, um, that's when they were having this reinforcing substance. So if these foods are addictive and we're seeing very similar prevalence rates between smoking, for instance, um, or nicotine use disorder, um, alcohol use disorder, so like the socially acceptable uh, substances and these foods and, and ultra processed food addiction. I think that's really strong evidence for you expose this amount of the population to something that is societally acceptable and this percent of the people get addicted. If there's parallels, I feel like that's pretty compelling evidence for a similar process going on. So really appreciate your perspectives and the way you're thinking about it. Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, with smoking and alcohol, and I don't even, you know, I wasn't necessarily around when that was completely normative, socially acceptable, but, you know, I tracked cute and triggers that I experienced in one day. It was over a hundred with billboards, commercials, you know, signs, conversations, lunchrooms, it's everywhere. So that is also makes refraining or abstaining from these substances so challenging. And I think, like you said, exactly without that level of acknowledgement or, you know, having an age limit or a warning label, I think that will be that policy change will be the only thing that will really create like maybe that eye-opening moment where people are like, Ooh, which is starting to happen in the UK, right? Yeah, definitely. There's some promising like legislation going on, um, different perspectives. Um, a, a lot of the like the European food guidelines are also a lot more stringent about the types of additives that can be put on put in, which undoubtedly have some role here in the same way that cigarettes have hundreds of ingredients. Like there is so much for us to discover. And I think the difficult thing is that the food industry already knows it and they're using that, you know, to their knowledge to create these products that get more and more reinforcing. And so you know, that's to me, the greatest challenge as a researcher in this area is that I'm conducting research on, you know, an academic research budget, whereas they're conducting this research for decades, informed by the tobacco industry, often led by leaders in the tobacco industry who have that knowledge of the skill set, and they're doing it on an industry budget. So that is most certainly going to be the greatest obstacle of my career. So what is the research and literature that is out there right now that's getting you really excited? Yeah, there's there's a lot. I, I think from the, the basic science standpoint, the, the animal research and, and doing this in rat models is particularly important because they don't have the cognitions around these foods. It's something that a lot of, you know, eating disorder perspectives are like, well, it's because this food's nostalgic, like rats don't really have that ability to like develop complex thoughts and, you know, memories with food. So what I think is is especially helpful here too, is the longitudinal um, aspect where, like you said, we, we feel like most people have exposure to these foods in infancy. So unless we're starting in, you know, infancy and, and following people across their lives, it's very hard for us to know 
know how this develops over time, what factors precede it, um, you know, genetically, are there predispositions before the food is ever introduced? Because there's a small window where that's true. So they can do a lot of that with um, basic science animal models. And it's been really interesting, some of the research that's come out um, currently showing like this prolonged ultra-processed food consumption is like preceding the development of obesity. It's preceding the development of this addictive eating behavior, which is just really in line with the addiction perspective that says, you know, take this vulnerable you know, person, rat, whatever it is, um, who's predisposed to develop an addiction, you have to introduce that addictive substance in order for the addiction to get triggered. And so they're showing that in rats, that that's happening uniquely with ultra processed foods. When they try to do it with the chow and get people hooked, get the rats hooked on the chow, it doesn't work because that really is meeting their homeostatic need. So that like longitudinal direct role of the ultra processed foods and understanding like the biological mechanisms behind that, um, is so essential because right now it, it would be really difficult to replicate that in humans. So I think that's really important science. Um, and then uh, just all the research going on around withdrawal and tolerance um, and the researchers who understand like the more support there are for those core mechanisms, the greater evidence there is that food addiction is this like distinct clinical phenotype that really aligns with the addiction world. So there's so much exciting things going on. I think as being more junior in my faculty career as well, it's exciting that there are so many questions to answer. I feel like I have my whole like road roadmap of, of my research laid out. I will always have many more questions, many more grants to write. Um, so to me, I feel really grateful for that. Um, and also the, the potential to, to help people and develop this like novel component. So controversial, but I feel like it makes my job more fun. So I really enjoy it. Yeah. Well, just hearing you talk about it and hearing your excitement really gets me excited too. And this isn't even like the thing that usually gets me going, but, um, I think that you're right there. It's so, it's still so early. There's still so much more to discover and figure out. And it doesn't feel like we're living history when we're living it every single day, you know, just the normal day-to-day kind of stuff. But I truly feel like from this perspective or from this in this area, we really are. And you're right there head, uh, you know, at the head of it all for sure. So before we go, cause I know you have about two minutes and we got to let you go. We have one last question. We have a signature question for all of our guests. If you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about food addiction, ultra processed food addiction, something along those lines, what would it be? Yeah, this is, I, I really love this question. I think there's a couple of, of things I would mention. So before, like long before I got into this research space and really understood, um, you know, the, the science behind it um, and investigated it myself, I think just understanding growing up that these foods and the eating behavior that you observe and people around you, there is some connection there. So, you know, you, you grow up, there's family members around you, there's friends around you, like as young women growing up in this country, I feel like we have always been thinking about food and what drives eating behavior, um, you know, just inevitably. So I feel like I would have mentioned to myself um, that these specific foods have been created in a way to cause some of these odd observations that you're seeing around you um, with respect to people's relationships with food. And I think from my young like researcher self, I think I, I would definitely mention like there is something here. <laughs> you, you will find meaningful research questions. Um, and I, I think I, I really appreciate my focus on 
isolating the foods themselves. That was like the initial question that I kind of came into grad school. Like there's a little bit of evidence for this food addiction idea at the time I started in like 2011 looking at this. So very soon after the Yale food addiction scale was even created. Um, and so I feel like looking at those foods and, you know, refining this definition of like, so what does this happen with the initial YFAS had a billion different foods on like, what do you experience this with? And like broccoli was on there. I remember feeling so like, there's no way that that's, you know, that's on here in the same sentence as ice cream. It's just, there's no way. So I feel like, um, you know, really encouraging that push on the specificity of foods is something that I, I didn't, you know, know at the time, but it, it's something that has been really important. And I, I keep that in mind of continuing to like find that specificity moving forward. But overall, it's, it's just such an exciting space to be in, um, particularly being more junior in my research career. Um, and I appreciate both of the work and perspectives um, that you all are also like bringing to this and the opportunity to collaborate and have these discussions about the ICD and next steps in this field. Um, I feel really grateful to be connected with you both. Thank you so much for being here today, Erica. This just like was such a mind-blowing conversation. Every time I sit down with you, I'm like, ooh, I get like revitalized and I'm like, let's go back out into the field. So Likewise. thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar-Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>